Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for your mercy. And Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from the allure of idols and from the instinct to turn to them. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from desires that are wicked. And we pray that you would give us the satisfaction that is spoken of here in Psalm 116. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Sorry, my wife put her notebook on top of my notes and I brought, them, brought it up here with, her, with me. So, um, This week, uh, Jill texted me a photo from, that Corey DeLeon had passed on to her. Some of you may remember uh, Corey. She was a member here uh, some time ago now and they've moved back down to Houston and um, Corey had, she sent Jill this photo and, and I'm, I'm looking at it here and uh, there, there is what appears to be a husband and a wife and they're standing in what looks like it used to be a nice room. And um, you can see the water standing on the floor and they are clearly dressed to uh, do, you know, clean up in, in a, a home that's been flooded. There's rolled up carpet that you can see. And these, this couple, this husband and apparently this husband and wife, they're standing holding this big sign that's really cool looking. It looks like something Anna D'Amico put together. And on the sign um, appear the words, do not forget a single blessing, Psalm 103.2. And these two people just look like they're radiant with joy in the midst of de devastation. And then the details about them um, go like this. There was five feet of water in their house. Up to, it was up to the ceiling in the garage. And I'll just, I would just say here, do you worship your stuff? Or maybe do you find your delight in your home? They lost both their cars. Is your identity wrapped up in what you drive? They had to flee in the middle of the night on Saturday, this last Saturday. Uh, my, I talked to my friend Travis Cardwell, who pastors in, in Houston. He said it was raining so hard that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Uh, they fled in that storm with their six-week-old baby girl, their five-year-old son, and their dog. They fled to a home, and then they had to flee from that home. So they, you know, they fled to friends' homes, and, and then that house got flooded, and a few hours later, they had to flee again. And then they came back to their home to clean up, and they're holding this sign that says, do not forget a single blessing, and there are smiles on their faces. Um, the idols will not save when the floodwaters rise. The living God saves even from death. That, I submit to you, is the message of Psalm 116. And we'll look at Psalms 116 and 17 this morning. I would invite you to turn there now. The living God saves from death. That's what we've got here. Um, as, as we look at Psalm 116, I'll, I'll try to describe the, the movement of thought as we move through the psalm. Um, what I want to draw your attention to at the outset right now is the way that Psalm 116 is so obviously linked to Psalm 115. So look at the opening words of Psalm 116. 
I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. I love the Lord because he has heard. Look back at 115 verse 6. Speaking of the idols, they have ears, but do not hear. And then 116.1, I love the Lord because he has heard. Heard. There's a contrast, isn't there, between that dead block of stone or, or molten metal or whatever it is. That thing cannot, it has ears, but it cannot incline those ears to its devotees. It cannot hear their supplications, but God hears. I, I love the Lord because he has heard. Don't miss also the way that the psalmist is so personally invested in God hearing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing back a little. I love Jonathan Edwards, but I want to push back against something that, that you read often in Edwards. He will often talk about how you ought to love God for his own sake with this kind of disinterested love that doesn't involve me personally at all. That is not what Psalm 116 verse 1 sounds like. I love the Lord because he has heard. So this is somebody who was in a place of desperate need. And we're going to see as we go through the psalm, look at verse 3, the snares of death. Later in verse 3, the pangs of Sheol. He he says in verse 6, I was brought low. And then in verse 8, he says, "You, you have delivered my soul from death. This is somebody who was in a desperate situation, a near death circumstance. And he cried out to the Lord. He's again and again in this psalm. Look at verse 4. Then I called on the name of the Lord. You see it again in verse uh, 13. And call on the name of the Lord. And then again in verse 17. And call on the name of the Lord. So he was in a desperate situation. He called on the name of the Lord. And God delivered him. And his reaction seems to go like this. That God who delivered me, who heard me, who inclined his ear to me and delivered. That God is worthy of my devotion. That God is worthy of my covenant commitment. That God is worthy of an emotional engagement from me. That's why he's saying, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. This is a love that I, I think includes a personal affection and it includes a covenantal devotion. I love the Lord. Because he has heard. Now, this kind of love arises from finding something in God that you can't find anywhere else. This man found something in his relationship with God that the idols did not give him. And the juxtaposition of Psalms 115 and 116 makes that clear. The idols don't hear. They don't see. They don't respond. But God heard. And for that, I love him. That's what's going on here. Let me invite you this moment to take stock of your life and to identify things that you are tempted to worship, things that you are tempted to find your satisfaction in, things that you get really excited about, maybe more excited about these things than worship. Maybe when, when you feel like you're really on the edge, you're, 
You're, you're spring-loaded instinctually to turn to one of these things. I don't know what it is in your life, but identify it. Identify it and hold it up next to the Lord. And, and let's say, put yourself in the, in, the, in the position of these people in Houston. Will your money help you when the floodwaters rise? Will your influence help you? Jill sent me another text about this family, uh, th this guy and his wife and, his, and their child. Uh, they have to flee their home, and they flee to a gas station. Well, the gas station shuts down, and there's nobody at the gas station that can take them, uh, take them along, and so the they put them outside the gas station, and the waters are rising. And uh, this guy related that he thought, it was, he thought they were going to die. He thought the water was going to sweep them away. Uh, but in God's kindness, somebody came along and picked them up and, and carried them off. Influence is not going to help you at that moment when the emergency lines are down. Sex is certainly not going to save you. Um, I, I don't know what, what we're all inclined to worship. Your, your cutesy little toys are not going to save you. So identify the idols in your life and repudiate the worship of them. Put them in their proper place. There's a time and a place for everything. Some idols need to be destroyed. Other idols just need to be lowered to their appropriate place where they're not being worshipped. And, and embrace the perspective of this psalmist. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, note, note, note what's going on here. He's had a past experience of God's mercy and, and, and grace. God heard the pleas for supplication, right? That provokes love. And then in response to that, therefore, into verse 2, I will call on him as long as I live. Do you hear what he's saying? He is saying, I am hereby committing myself to calling on the Lord in all such circumstances going forward. Because of the way that he heard me, I love him. And therefore, I will call on him. If you're here this morning um, and you're wondering, maybe you're not a Christian, you're wondering what it is to be somebody who walks with God, what it is to be somebody who identifies with Jesus, who, who embraces the Bible, who joins a church like this, this is what it is. It is to experience an almighty deliverance that is only possible from a living God. And then in response to that deliverance, it's to feel love and devotion to that God. And then because of the way you've been delivered, it's to commit yourself to calling on him going forward. That's what it is to be a Christian. We would invite you to join this, join us in, in this incomparable experience of knowing God. So in verses 1 and 2, he introduces, his, he introduces this psalm with his love for God. In verses 3 through 6, what he's going to do is he's going to describe his distress. And he's going to talk about the way that God's character helped him in the distress. So this little section, verses 3 through 6, is going to open and close with statements of his need. Look at verse 3. The snares of death encompassed me. That, that language may sound familiar to you. It's the exact same wording of the first part of Psalm 18, verse 4, which, as, we, you know, as we're moving through the Psalms, um, this is not the first time we've seen something from David's earlier life placed in what looks like uh, the future. And so I think, again, 
the historical David is kind of like a model for the future David. And I think there's, there's warrant here for uh, thinking of the way that the snares of death encompass David and thinking of the way that the snares of death encompass, encompass Jesus and the way that Jesus was faithful to cry out to the Lord for deliverance there. He says, the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. It's where dead people go. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Now, in, in Christ, he died, right? He died. The pangs of Sheol literally laid hold on Jesus. But the psalmist, probably what's going on is he's, he's experiencing what he understands to be the beginning stages of death. Or, or, or perhaps realizing, this is it for me. I heard, heard a story years ago about... Um, uh, two guys who got swept out into the open ocean by a riptide. And one of those guys was a pastor, and the person that was relating this story to me, to me about this incident, he, he basically related that, that these two guys, as they, as they found themselves out in the open ocean, they were taken so far from the coastline, uh, they didn't think they were going to live. They, they came to the place where they thought their lives were over, and um, this, this was several years after this incident, and, and my friend who was telling me about this, he said, you know, I don't think that pastor ever really recovered from that. He, he never really got over that experience. Something like this, maybe, is what the psalmist is talking about. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. He says at the end of verse 3, I suffered distress and anguish. And then look down at the end of verse 6 where he says near the end of verse 6, I was brought low. That's, that's another reference to that experience. Everything in between, the description of his distress and the, and the description of him being brought low, is all focused on God. Look at verse 4. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. You know what he's asking God to do? He's basically saying, Lord, save my life. Keep me alive. Deliver my soul. And then in verse 5, this sounds like Exodus 34, 6, and 7, where the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth. And the psalmist says here in verse 5, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. You see what he's focusing on here? He's calling on the name of the Lord, and the Lord is proclaiming his name to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And then he's rehearsing the character of the Lord. He's thinking about who God has revealed himself to be, a God who is gracious and righteous and merciful. This is... The, it's almost like these statements about God, gracious, righteous, merciful, these are the, the, the truth statements, and then everything else in the Bible is like a footnote to these statements. Everything else in the Bible is explaining these statements about God. This is who God is. He is a God who is gracious and merciful. He is a God who welcomes repentant sinners and does not punish them as they deserve. And he's also a God who's righteous, which means that somehow, even as he forgives and welcomes sinners, he also upholds the righteous standard that demands the condemnation of sinners. 
And the way that he pulls that off is through the death and resurrection of his own son. There is nobody else that could do this. There is nobody else who could be described as both gracious and merciful and righteous in the way that God is. There is no other God like this. Only the character of God is strong enough to hold you fast when all the idols fail. I'm going to repeat that statement. Only the character of God. You see what the psalmist is resorting to here. He's resorting to God and who he is, who, is who, who he has shown himself to be. Only the character of the living God is sufficient to hold you when your idols fail. In verse 7, he's going to start preaching to himself. Look at verse 7. He says, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. He's talking to himself. Return, O my soul, to your rest. What's his rest? Well, I think the, the identification of the rest is, is, is made known through the rest of verse 7. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. I think what he's essentially saying to himself is, turn back to God. Return, oh my, but he's calling God his rest. And, and we, could, we could sort of flesh this out a little bit. Return, oh my soul, to your place of rest. Do you have a, do you have a place of rest in your life? Do you have a place where, where when you really want to relax, uh, you really want to kick back and enjoy yourself? I mean, you know... Uh, what, what comes to my mind here is um, a bowl full of uh, the Velveeta uh, cheese dip with Rotel in it, you know, American cheese product, this stuff that my wife only allows me to have about once a year because it's so unhealthy, <laughs> a bowl of that stuff with some Pringles and an Arkansas Razorback football game on the television. I would be kicked back and relaxed, but this is describing a better rest than that, isn't it? This is describing a rest that will actually make you healthy. A rest that will actually heal your soul. Return, O oh my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Here again, I think we're having a kind of interaction between Psalm 116 and 115. Because this the idols could never do. The idols could not give rest. The idols cannot deal bountifully with your soul. And I know that probably nobody in this room is tempted to bow down to a piece of stone, right? But we're all tempted. We're all tempted to think, if I had this or that, or if I could experience this or that, or if I, if I was recognized in this way, we're all tempted to make idols. And the psalmist is talking to himself here, return, O my soul, to your rest. There's a place of peace and safety in knowing God that is without compare. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Now, look down at verse 12. In verse 12, when he says, what shall I render? The language is actually the same as verse 7 when he says return. So we could say, what shall I return to the Lord? And then the language of benefits is the same terminology as the Lord dealing bountifully. So I'm going to su suggest that verses 7 through 11 are a unit of thought here. And then verse 12, because it uses the same terminology as verse 7, it's starting a new section. So let's, let's consider what's going on here in verses 7 through 11. He's, he's calling himself to return to the Lord. 
And then he addresses the Lord directly in verse 8. The reason he should return to his rest in God in verse 7 is because he says to the Lord, you have delivered my soul from death. Now, I think this is working at, at more than one level, this deliverance of his soul from death. Uh, and, and, and again, I think there's, there's interaction between 115 and 116 here. Uh, God has done for him what the idols could not do for him. God has saved him from death and restored him to life in a way that the idols could not do. But then there's also this connection between uh, the death that he's been delivered from and look back at 115 verse 17, the dead. And we identified the dead as those in 115 verse 8, all who... Uh, make the idols and become like the dead idols and because they trust in the dead idols, so they become like the idols in their death. And the psalmist is saying, you delivered my soul from death. You actually saved me and you liberated me from idolatry. You have delivered my soul from death. God is powerful enough to break the chains of sin in our lives. God is powerful enough to liberate us from the idols that we are tempted to worship. God is compelling enough to convince us not to return to those things, but to return to the place of rest that is the Lord. And this psalmist is saying, you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And then he says in verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Notice the connection between his feet being delivered from stumbling, so he's enabled to walk, and he is not going to be in Sheol, the place of the dead. He's going to be in the land of the living, the God who will raise the dead. And I think this psalm is largely about, or it's, it's anticipating resurrection from the dead. The God who will raise the dead, the God who will deliver from death is strong enough to break us free from all the things that cause death, namely all the things that, all the ways in which we're tempted to sin. Don't miss this also. Uh, so what I'm trying to do here is deconstruct temptation, all right? So this is the way temptation works on us. You'll be happier if you do this. You'll experience a greater degree of satisfaction if you indulge yourself in this way. You will have what you want if you take that. You will, you will be recognized the way that you want to be if you will walk in that pride, or you know, I, whatever the case may be. What the psalmist is saying here is, no, actually, walking with God made me happier than the sin did. I will walk with the Lord in the land of the living. I won't be weeping. I won't be stumbling. You've delivered my feet from stumbling, my eyes from tears. What he's saying is that there is a higher pleasure that is known, a deeper satisfaction that is had by those who, who know God and walk with him. And then look at verse 10. Here he's, he's describing this distress that he was in again. And this, this is the reason that Mike read uh, that passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 earlier, because Paul quotes this passage. And I, I said just a second ago that I think this, this, this psalm is about resurrection from the dead. And in the wider context there of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is talking about how um, he, in, in 2 Corinthians 1, he says 
uh, that, that the Lord brought him to the point where he despaired of life. And that was to make him rely on God who raises the dead. And then just a couple of chapters later, he's talking about how he's carrying around in his body the death of Jesus. So I think what he's saying is, as I suffer, the death of Jesus is portrayed to people through my sufferings. And then he says, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. And I think what he's saying is, my suffering is testifying to the suffering of Christ. And then God preserving me, God delivering me from death is testifying to the way that God raised Jesus from the dead. And, and I think this is what he's getting at when he says things like, you know, we have this, this treasure and jars of clay and we're beaten down, but we're not crushed. He's not giving up. And the reason he's not giving up is because this resurrection life has taken hold in his heart through the, the Holy Spirit regenerating him. And then picking up on this Old Testament psalm about resurrection from the dead, Paul quotes uh, Psalm 116, verse 10. I believed even when I spoke. Now, the psalmist is saying, what he's saying in verse 10 is, even when I said, I am greatly afflicted, even when he thought he was about to die, he says, I believed. Even at the deepest darkness, I believed. And, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we have that same spirit of faith. I believed and so I spoke. So Paul is quoting the passage in accordance with its meaning. And, and there, there's just a, there's a deep resonance between the meaning of Psalm 116 and the way that Paul is quoting it in the context of his own experience. So even as the psalmist is saying, I am greatly afflicted. Even as the psalmist is suffering, he's saying, I believed, even in that moment. Verse 11, I said in my alarm, this is in, in that deepest, darkest uh, moment of his affliction, all mankind are liars. And this makes me think of, of Romans 3, when Paul says, let God be true, though every man were a liar. Look, Jesus is the only hero. God is the only one who will prove himself always to be true. God is the only one that you can rely on in a moment like this. When everybody around you seems like a traitor, when everybody around you seems to have failed you, you can rely on God. You should trust him, even in that deepest moment of affliction. Okay, so uh, verses 7 through 11 are a unit there. And I think the psalmist is urging himself to continue to find his rest in God. And then in verses 12 through 14, we have another unit in response to the way that God has saved him. So in some ways, what we've got in verses 1 through 11 is a description of the distress. And then 12 through 19, we've got a response to the distress. What shall I return or what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits or all his bountiful treatment of me. Look at the response in verse 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. There's two things he says he's going to do. The first is he says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. This may be talking about one of those Old Testament drink offerings. You know, in, in Leviticus and Numbers and, and Deuteronomy, you read about various acts of worship where uh, they'll, they'll, they'll take a... a a basin and, and fill it with water or some other liquid, and they'll pour out a drink offering to the Lord. You remember David, when the guys uh, broke through and, and got him water from that one 
uh, that one spring, and he poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord. He may be saying something like that. Or he may be saying something like, um, I will participate in a feast that, that celebrates God's covenant love for his people. And God's historic, so in the Passover uh, celebration, you know, in, in the liturgy, there were various points at which they would drink from different cups. And so he may be thinking of the Passover meal. He may be thinking of the third cup, the cup of redemption. And he may be saying, I will lift up the cup of redemption and call on the name of the Lord. And, and if that's what he's doing, what he's saying is something like this. I am going to feast with God's people in a celebration of God's covenant love. You know where that's fulfilled? When we partake of the Lord's, Lord's Supper, it was probably that third cup that Jesus lifted when he said, this cup is not anymore about the exodus from Egypt and the redemption of God's people from there. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So you can, I think, you can think of Psalm 116 verse 13 when we partake of the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. And you can think to yourself, I will lift up the cup of salvation. And what we're doing is we are fellowshipping with one another, communing with one another and with the Lord. And call on the name of the Lord. So I'm going to celebrate God's, God's salvation. I'm going to enter into fellowship and, and enjoyment of it with God's people. And then I'm going to continue to call on his name. And apparently, in his difficulty, he, he seems from verse 14 to have made vows to the Lord. We see this kind of thing in the, in the Old Testament where they uh, would make these commitments. And now what he's saying is, I'm going to fulfill those vows. Verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What he's saying is, I am going to unashamedly celebrate God's goodness to me. I am going to do what I have said I will do with reference to the Lord. Down in verse 18, that, that same statement, ver, verbatim, word for word, is repeated. And I think what that does is it marks off verse 14 as the end of the pre, that, this unit we're talking about, verses 12 through 14. And then it tells us that verses 15 through 18 are another section. Look at what he says in verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That's one of the most beautiful lines in the Bible. Um, when, whenever uh, a member of our congregation dies, uh, it blesses my soul that when Matt and Anna send out an email, that verse is on there. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You know what that verse is saying? It's saying, as I was thinking about this, what, what came to my mind is the way that often when I hear about some Christian in a faraway place having perished, maybe even been martyred, often I, I, I recognize that I don't feel it as I should. It doesn't grieve me. I, I, I'm just disconnected from them. And, and it's something that can just pass over me without too much emotion. And what this is saying is that God feels it. God feels it, and he responds to it as he should. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Uh, incidentally, as I was studying this passage, um, I was looking at the ways that various translations uh, render this, and uh, there's one translation that has a good interpretation of this verse, but I think it's the worst translation I've ever seen. Uh, in, all, in all my years of looking at the way that different verses are translated, this has got to be the worst. Um, the words in this verse are not hard to understand, are they? We know what the word precious means. We know what the word death means. 
We know what the word uh, sight means, right? These are not difficult words, but this translation, instead of translating it, what they did was they interpreted it. But listen to their, their quote-unquote translation. The Lord values the lives of his people. Is that not pitiful? That is pitiful. That is an awful translation. I mean, yes, the verse is saying the Lord values the lives of his people, but that is so poetically poor. It's, it's not even, you can't even describe, I'm sorry. <laughs> you can ask me later what translation that was, and we can laugh at it together. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And then the psalmist identifies himself as one of God's saints. Oh Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. What he's saying is, my life was precious in your sight. And you delivered me because I'm one of yours. You have loosed my bonds. Uh, the word there for bonds, it's, it's a word that doesn't occur a whole lot. Um, but it occurs in Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, the wicked are saying, let us cast their bonds from us. So the wicked are rebelling against the Lord. And then all through the Psalter, the wicked have been troubling uh, the, the psalmist, all through the Psalter. And it's, it's like the wicked are trying to cast off the bonds of the Lord and His anointed, and they're trying to put on the Lord's anointed their bonds. And the psalmist is saying, you have loosed my bonds. They can't get a hold of me. So verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. This psalmist is modeling for us the response that God wants. God wants from us praise and thanks. That's what he wants from us. He wants a grateful heart. He wants us to offer to him the sacrifice of thanksgiving. You, you notice there's no animal that he's, that he's referencing here. This guy gets it. The Lord doesn't eat the blood of bulls and goats. The Lord wants a grateful heart. And then verse 19, he's confident that this is going to take place in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Now, Psalm 117 is just a mere two verses. But these two verses are significant, and they're connected to what's gone before and what's going to come after. So in 117.1, the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. And again, uh, one of these words is, is common enough, the word nations. But the other term for peoples is not that common. And the, the order in which these words occur is exactly like the order in which they occur in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot I'm sorry, Psalm 2. Did I say 2-1? I meant to say 2-1. I may have said Psalm 1. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? So with the reference to the bonds that are loosed, and now the peoples and the nations in 117, verse 1, here's what I would propose to you is, is the significance of this. Um, what the psalmist is saying is, you rebels back in Psalm 2, 1 through 3, the king of Psalm 110 has triumphed. So you need to praise him. You need to, again, it's just like Psalm 2, 10 through 12. Uh, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. What he's saying to the nations is, you owe the king praise. You should bow to the Lord. Extol him, all peoples. For, here's why, verse 2, great is his steadfast love toward us, 
and the faithfulness or the truth of the Lord endures forever. Notice, nations, peoples, praise him because great is his love toward us. Great is his love toward his people. Because of the way that God has vindicated his people, which he swore to do them, to do to, for them, right? He kept his word. He was true to them because he loved them. He was loving and steadfast in that love for them. All the nations should praise the Lord, the psalmist says. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, at the, at the end, he tells the story of this guy named Langdon Gilkey. Uh, this fellow, Langdon Gilkey, grew up in liberal Christianity. Christianity that didn't really believe in God, didn't believe in the miracles, didn't believe in the Bible, but it liked all the virtues, you know? It liked uh, kindness, it liked uh, think of others, liked the golden rule, all that kind of business. Um, and then this guy, Langdon Gilkey, he found himself um, in China in, in the context of World War II when the Japanese overran China. And he found himself in a Japanese, essentially, concentration camp in China. And he describes, he had, he had written these books, this guy Langdon Gilkey, he had written these books about how, um, essentially, everybody, just on the basis of their reason and their, their inherent virtue, everybody's going to start doing what Christianity calls people to do any, anyway, you know, as though you don't need Jesus and you don't need the Bible to arrive at these good ways of living because, because um, if, if, if you just think about what's in your own self-interest, you know, you do unto them uh, as you would like to be done unto you and it'll come back to you and so it's, it's rational and it's in your self-interest to do this and so naturally people are going to live this way. And then he found himself in this concentration camp and um, he describes this incident where um, uh, the way this, falls, this, this fell out is you'd, you'd have a certain number of men in a, in a cell block or in a, you know, a, a living space, and, um, and then the amount of space that those men had was to be equal to the amount of, of, uh, the amount of space had by the same number of men in a, in a same-sized cell block, and both cell blocks got the same amount of food. And then a circumstance arose where there were 11 men in one of these units and only nine men in another. And this guy Langdon Giltke thought that he could go to these guys and say, hey, it'll balance everything out. It'll be fair for everybody. It's reasonable. It's rational. It's good for all concerned. If one of you guys goes over there and then they're 10 and 10 and you all have the same amount of space and the same amount of food. And... Um, Tim Keller writes, the men of block 49 heard Gilkey's excellent logic and replied, that may be, friend, but let me tell you a thing or two. Fair or not fair, if you put one of them in here, we are merely heaving him out again. And if you come back here about this, we are heaving you out too. These people didn't want to give up their space. And they didn't want to give up their extra food. They wanted what they had. And so, so um, this, this guy, Land. Langdon Gilkey, he goes home and he's, he's uh, defeated and um, then he, he has this thought, why should a man wish to be reasonable or moral if he thereby lost precious space? What obliged a person to be rational? If you argue that to be rational is simply to be in your best interests, you are appealing to no higher value than selfishness. So why shouldn't the person act 
selfishly. What's happening is he ran up against human nature. He ran up against our sinfulness. But there was somebody else in that concentration camp. Somebody who in this guy Langdon Gilkey's book, which is called uh, The Shantung Compound, uh, in the book, his pseudonym is Eric Ridley. In real life, his name was Eric Liddell. And he was a real Christian. He believed there was a real God. He believed that the miracles in the Bible were true. And so in that place of selfishness and greed and nastiness, what was testified about Eric Liddell was that he was a real Christian. Only the living God can deliver you from death. And only your experience of the character of the living God can enable you to live as the Bible calls you to live. Let's pray together. Father, we join with this psalmist in saying that we love you because you heard our voice. We cried to you from a place of guilt and shame. We cried to you from a place of need, Lord, from which no idol could deliver us. And you inclined your ear and you showed yourself to be the God who is gracious and merciful and righteous. And so we commit our souls to you, Lord, and we pray that you would continue the work, the good work that you have begun in us. We pray that you would carry it to completion. We pray that you would help us to recognize those things that tempt us, the idols that we're drawn to, and we pray that you would help us to reject them, to repudiate them, to put them in their place, and to live as you've called us to live. Lord, we want to offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. We want to give you the praise that you deserve. And so we pray that you would make us those who lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.